Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. It's very exciting today because we are covering, and it bugs me that we don't cover it more, Zach, so I'm very impressed you've gone off and found this, We're covering Native American history today. Tell us how. Well, you do sometimes shout at me when I don't produce quite what you're after, so I figured I'd better kind of deal with this one um, and make sure that we did do some decent Native American history. And I'm delighted to say we're joined by Greg Smithers. Greg is a professor of American history at Virginia Commonwealth University and is a British Academy global professor at Hull University. So very distinguished CV. He researches on Cherokee and Southeastern indigenous history, as well as gender, sexuality, racial and environmental history. He's the author of Native Southerners, Indigenous History from Origins to Removal. The Cherokee Diaspora, an Indigenous History of Migration, Resettlement and Identity. And today we're going to be talking about his latest book, Reclaiming Two Spirits, Sexuality, Spiritual Renewal and Sovereignty in Native America. Greg, I'm a bit out of breath after that incredible (laughs) CV. How are you doing? Welcome to History Hack. Hi, thanks so much for having me. This is brilliant. Right. Let's start with the title. And explaining what that means to people. So two spirit, what is meant by that term and what's the history behind it? Okay, so it's a fairly recent history we're talking about. Uh, But before I get into that, I should say that the title actually comes from Native people themselves. So I spent a lot of time talking uh, with Native community members, uh, with elders about um, their culture, their history, um, what is acceptable for historians to make public um, and other material that ethically I should not publish uh, because the public doesn't necessarily have a right to hear that information. And they may, as anthropologists and historians did for decades and perhaps centuries, uh, get information out of context um, and misrepresent 
uh, native native knowledge and, and tradition and ceremony. So I was very careful um, in writing this book to make sure that I I spoke with elders and got their permission uh, and 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 sort of their approval um, to go ahead with this. And so the title actually comes. I mean, this is what Native people who are Two Spirit are doing. They're reclaiming tradition. They're reclaiming knowledge, and they're reclaiming their their identities. Um, and so the phrase Two Spirit. Uh, comes out of a gathering that occurred of what was then called lesbian, gay, bisexual, uh, and trans Indians uh, in 1990. Uh, It was the third international gathering, um, and the gathering occurred just outside of Winnipeg, uh, Manitoba, in Canada. And if you cast your mind back to this period, this is the era of um, the AIDS pandemic. Um, HIV AIDS was, was... tearing a swath through uh, communities of color in particular um, in North America. And so there was an awful lot of external stress in addition to people trying to reclaim uh, culture and knowledge. And so at this third gathering, people got together. It was about 100 people at a campsite just outside of Winnipeg. And people brought their tents and their teepees and food. It was a uh, alcohol and drug-free event that was very important to people, and it continues to be important to Two-Spirit people. And they sat around and they did what Native people have done for centuries, and they talked and debated and discussed, and they laughed and cried and sang, and um, they held each other. And out of this, they decided that Two-Spirit would be the ideal nomenclature, the ideal label uh, for for who they were, you know, gay and lesbian and bisexual, these Western terms didn't quite capture it. I mean, that, that spoke about sexuality and yes, sexuality was important to two spirit people, but it didn't quite capture the, 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 the completeness and the connection to culture that people were looking for. And so this term two spirit is an English translation of an Algonquin term, Nijmanaduog, and Nijmanaduo basically means a person with male and female spirits in a single person. And although these, although terms for two-spirit people are specific, tribally specific, this is an umbrella term seemed to be a good fit. The delegates at that, at that 1990 gathering agreed because it was a term that both um, native, non-gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans people could get, and also non-native people, period, could, could grasp onto and understand. And so as this umbrella, it then provided the space to engage in what might be called international diplomacy with the non-Indigenous LGBTQ community uh, and, and the broader American community. And then from within, you know, with that umbrella sort of encompassing this this very diverse group of people, people could then have the space to reclaim and to rearticulate specific traditions, traditions specific and knowledge specific to their communities. So looking at the the history behind this then and, and what's been written before, how much has previously been written about what would before the the term two spirit were, was 
brought into the mainstream, um, what we would have termed LGBTQ members of the Native American community. And how has their history been characterized generally? Yeah, and that's a great point. That's a great question, uh, because the reason that this umbrella term was deemed to be necessary is that um, the scholarly community and um, the non-Indigenous community across North America generally referred to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender Indians uh, at the time in the 1980s and 1990s by a very old and offensive term. Uh, the term was badash, um, which is derived from an old Persian term, which basically means a slave or a kept boy. Um, it was a term of submission. Um, it was a term that was used, it was still used in the 1980s and the early 1990s uh, in anthropological scholarship. Um, historians very rarely touch this topic, um, largely because of the archival silences. And historians, um, being a very positivistic bunch that we are, we like stuff to be written down, right? Um, and so if it's not written down somewhere, then it's very difficult for us to, to talk about. Um, so that, that was a problem for, for historians. Um, for literary scholars, um, they had started writing about this um, in the 1980s and 1990s, but they were using that old offensive language um, of badash. Um, and in addition to sort of, um, I don't know, mindlessly perhaps or passively, probably a better way to put it, uh, of repeating some of the language that was used in uh, archival texts that survived, right? So sodomites, hermaphrodites, um, you know, these types of offensive labels that said more about Europeans and what they thought they saw uh, and what they misunderstood uh, than it said about native knowledge and culture. So, so in terms of what was written then, there was a lot of misinformation out there. Um, now, I should point out that in, in the 1980s, there were a few scholars who began to re-engage with this subject. Um, and that, that was quite revolutionary at the time because this is a topic that hadn't been touched really since anthropologists were doing field work in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, those anthropologists at places like UC Berkeley were reifying those older terms like badash um, in some of their work. And I talk about them in the book. Um, so in the 1980s and 1990s, um, there were a, a new group of anthropologists who were beginning to look for ways to get around these offensive labels. Um, and that work ultimately led to the movement that I, I talked about in terms of two-spirit people saying, hold on a minute, we've got to take control of this narrative ourselves. Uh, because they were engaging with the anthropologists in the 80s and 90s, but two-spirit people were still seeing Western scholars controlling, driving the narrative. Um, and Western scholars were imposing labels like Amazon onto two-spirit women, for example. And that just didn't quite fit. Um, it, it just seemed culturally inappropriate. Um, which is why we get two-spirit people driving the narrative by the 1990s. And it has to be said that it's a lot of, a lot of literary uh, writing, a lot of poetry, a lot of literary analysis, um, and a lot of art um, in terms of performative art, dance, 
uh, painting and, you know, modern technologies over the last generation to not only recapture and re-engage with older traditions, uh, but also to tell new stories, which, I mean, we're talking about living cultures here and that's what two-spirit people, as I talk about in the book, are doing. They're giving new life and adding new chapters, if you will, to what it means to be two-spirit in the 21st century. So, I mean, that's a long-winded way of saying that I sort of came in on the scene and decided that in conversations with some of my friends who were two-spirited, that there was really, and they were telling me that there's really no history that adequately deals with who we are within the context of American colonialism, but more specifically and more importantly within Native communities. Um, And so in terms of a narrative that's written, I hope that's accessible uh, and engaging for people, um, there's very few stories like this out there. Um, In terms of book length treatments, it's it's largely scholarly stuff. And so very dense, very jargonistic. Um, I've tried to write something that's, that's different. So the book stands out in that respect. I think we should talk more generally about the history of sexuality and Native Americans because it's such an interesting topic. So prior to the arrival of the Spanish in the Americas, how did Native Americans think about sexuality and how did that change in the 16th century? It's difficult to answer. I mean, it's, it's hard to know what's going on inside people's heads and what's, mm-hmm. what's driving their, their urges. But it does seem from, from the archival excuse me, from the archaeological evidence that has survived that Native people throughout the Americas had a a healthy attitude and respect for sexual expression. Um, It didn't necessarily fall along the heteronormative lines that that we associate with in Western culture. Um, It was perfectly acceptable in in cultures throughout the Americas for people to uh, have sexual partners um, across what we understand today as male and female, the male and female gender binary. Um, the, and that was represented. That was represented in uh, the, the, the crafts and the pottery, um, the effigy work that was done in terms of, of architecture and mound construction. Uh, and so that healthy respect for human expression um, we, we see that in the archaeological record and we see it surviving through uh, the, the oral histories. One of the interesting things I found in, in doing this is that Europeans tried very hard. I mean, you got to remember that the Spanish came along and it's not just conquistadors, it's, it's missionaries also. And they burned text. I mean, we, we're having a debate in the United States right now about censorship and what should, what is pornography and what should be uh, available to college and, and school age children. Um, missionaries were making, taking that decision out of our hands really in the, in the 1600s and they were burning Mayan and Aztec uh, codices and, and documents that would have given us far deeper insight into human emotion, human sexuality, human relationships. Um, and so we've had to rely extensively on, on that oral record um, simply because uh, a lot of the uh, empirical written documentation that, that historians like 
um, was destroyed. And, and there are numerous instances we can go through the centuries um, and talk about that. Uh, I mean, during the Revolutionary War, for example, Cherokee towns in southern Appalachia were burned and destroyed. And with that were burned and destroyed documents that gave insights into the political, social and cultural life of Cherokee people. Uh, and in fact, some of the documents that were then stolen and taken uh, by continental soldiers uh, become some of the first documents in the Library of Congress. Right, so there's the stories of destruction and theft here uh, that are woven into the story of, of two-spirit sexuality and, and gender construction. And I say all of this because what is really quite extraordinary, and I think what makes this story uh, epic in terms of a story of not only survival, but of resilience and innovation and just extraordinary will and energy is the way in which uh, Native peoples were able to hold on to those traditions, to, keep, to recognize that colonialism at various times throughout the 18th, 19th, 20th, into the 21st century uh, was such an oppressive force that sometimes we need to take these things inward. Uh, and as I point out in the book, one of the, one of the things that people understand is that if white Americans understood what was really going on in Indian communities, they probably would have tried even harder to wipe them out uh, because that knowledge was such a challenge to heteronormative male, female, uh, heterosexual relationships. Um, and so the fact that Native people are able to nurture in private those traditions, the stories, and the, and the practices uh, of fluid gender and sexual relationships, um, to me, is, is quite a triumphant story uh, set against a backdrop of, of extraordinary oppression and violence at times. There is a whole podcast really to be done, isn't there, on the yeah. survival of Native American traditions. Um, and much though I'm tempted to dive into that, I think we'll probably save that for another day. But I do want to touch on something that's related to what you were just saying there, which is about European attitudes and reactions mm. towards Native American um, gender identities and constructions. You've written about their fixation with manly women and feminine men. Talk yeah. us through how that works from the, the European perspective and what they're trying to refer to. So Europeans, and particularly the English, sorry guys, uh, were really put off by Native American people seemingly changing their identity, right? Uh, clothing, uh, body uh, adornments, whether it's, it's paint, whether it's jewelry, uh, whether it was the way people wore their hair, uh, a whole, you know, it runs the gamut of physical manipulation and subterfuge as, as the English saw it. And they saw this as an external marker of how native people were not to be trusted, right? They're up to no good. They're shifty and sneaky. Um, they say one thing, they still got both sides of their mouth basically is, is the implication here. Right. Um, and so if you've got a culture, if you're dealing with a culture and you're trying to establish diplomatic relations and trade relations with a native group uh, and 
some of their leaders, their knowledge keepers are changing their physical appearance, similarly changing their identities, then how can you trust them, right? If they've got, if they've got 10, 11, 12 different words to describe their gendered identity, um, who are these people? Um, I mean, this really threw Europeans through a loop. Um, you know, this was a time when Europeans are really trying very hard through the law, through politics, through trade, to really nail down uh, a lot of the categories that define the modern world in the 19th and 20th centuries. Right? This, that's, it's all being made during the 17th, 18th uh, century. And Europeans bring all those concerns with them. Right? This is, these are sort of mechanisms to socially order and politically structure colonial societies. And in fact, it's deemed even more important uh, in a colonial space that is seemingly wild and lawless. And so whether we're talking about Italians, whether we're talking about the French, uh, the Spanish, but particularly the English, the English were really, really concerned, as I mentioned, about um, the manipulation of, um, of, of physical appearance. And as I said, they, they, they're concerned about that because they're worried about whether they can trust uh, people that they're dealing with. Um, but the English are also really concerned that the behaviors that they assume they're seeing might bleed into the nascent colonial communities and influence the way colonial uh, colonizers uh, behave with each other. And that, that remains a concern throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, in fact, even into the 19th century in, some of the, the, the captive narratives that, that emerged during the, that century. Um, so control, trying to get some sort of control over um, how Native people comport themselves um, was, was part of the, the knowledge conquest, was part of the colonial endeavor um, to acquire that information and then stamp out, if necessary, the types of gendered behaviors, sexual activity that that cross the heterosexual line. Um, and that's why you see such intense violence um, from the moment the Spanish arrive all the way through to the English and, and, and Americans. I mean, I talk about George Catlin, the famous painter um, who wishes for the tradition of the Badash, as he calls it, to be extinguished forever so that there's no knowledge of it. Right? There's sort of this, this desire for uh, a type of cultural genocide that continues into the 19th century. And that's, that's a harbinger back to an era when uh, European colonizers were targeting the people we call today Two-Spirit because they recognized that they were the keys, they were the links and the knowledge keepers. And if they eliminate those people from native communities, then they eliminate all knowledge uh, of these traditions. Uh, and, and so that's, that's, that's why Two-Spirit people were so often targeted um, in, in the history that I narrate. So we're talking about Westerners trying to, or sorry, Western Europeans coming over and trying to um, obliterate traditions that they find. How do Native Americans respond to this? Well, they respond in a number of different ways. Um, 
One of the things I think it's important for listeners to recognize is Native people didn't just submit to colonialism. Mm. Um, Native people had a number of different strategies uh, for negotiating with and dealing with colonizers from all different European backgrounds. And for the most part, that meant trying to incorporate uh, this, this foreign knowledge and these foreign systems into their own systems of kinship and politics and culture and so on. And that really continued. I mean, in some ways, that still continues today. Um, Native people are trying to find the space in the 21st century to continue their traditions and their knowledge and their ceremonies while seeming to uh, use the political traditions and language of, Ameri- of the American Republic. Right? So that's, that's nothing new. Native people have been doing that for a long time. Um, and that, that applies to trade as, as well as politics and, and other facets of life. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. So that's one area in which Native people tried to resist, was to incorporate ideas and knowledge and structures on their own terms. Um, Another was to physically resist, and there are a number of two-spirit people throughout the book, from the Pacific coast to the Atlantic coast that I talk about, who do engage in armed resistance. Uh, This is the most obvious form of resistance. It's the type of resistance that my students like to hear about most, of Native people taking up arms and sticking it to the European colonizers. Um, And there is some some evidence of that, um, of Native people resisting European and Anglo-American intrusions and invasions into their homelands. And with that, uh, an effort to remake their culture and and their knowledge systems. Um, But there are other forms of resistance too. And I think silence in this case is a resistance, uh, a form of resistance for for Native people and particularly for Two-Spirit people. Uh, Because what they had to do is they had to keep those traditions in house and that would thank God they did because what we see developing in the late 20th century as gay and lesbian Indians in the 1970s, as they then called themselves, was searching for a sense of identity, um, a sense of place in the world, but particularly in the native world in Indian country. They went back to the elders and the elders who were not necessarily two spirit themselves had held on to these stories, had held on to the knowledge and were able to pass it on and share it with those gay and lesbian Indian leaders in the 1970s and early 1980s who are now two-spirit elders in the 21st century. And they've taken that knowledge and they're able to then tell those stories to younger two-spirited people today. And I think for me, in writing the book and in telling a number of those stories, that is the most uh important lesson i think is is just how determined and resilient native communities are to hold on to tradition and to renew knowledge traditions so that they are they're they're i mean these are living traditions we're talking about so that they still have meaning uh in 2021 we're in 2022 now sorry 
Um, <laughs> it's okay. COVID's done that to everyone. I know. I was I've lost a year, a year somewhere. <laughs> um, but yeah, it still has meaning in 2022 as much as it did in, in 1722 for people. Right. So that, I mean, what a gift, what a gift and what an incredible story for all the, the tales and they are many of violence and racism and homophobia and all of that stuff. Um, I still, at the end of the day, see this as a, as a really positive and uplifting story, a story of indigenous power. Um, and that's why, you know, that, that word reclaiming is at the beginning of the title. Uh, because, I mean, it is a story of just incredible resilience and strength and, and an ability to adapt and innovate uh, and take the traces of old stories and old knowledge and then to give them new life and meaning in the 21st century. I think that's, that's I just am blown away by that. I think it's incredible. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Can I talk and take this sort of back slightly to something you were talking about earlier when you were explaining to us about European attitudes and this desire to eradicate the, these whole notions of, of two spirits. Um, is, is religion a factor in all of that? Are you, can you sort of help us unpick, you know, to what extent is, particularly for the Spanish Catholicism, Protestantism, for, for the, the British? Um, how does that play in all of this? Some tedious connotations hasn't there with people's religious ideas that yeah. with them there's baggage there is baggage yes and i'm afraid so the short i mean the short answer is yes mm. and when i give to what's funny is when i give talks in front of uh indigenous groups that's all i really need to say <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> um they get i mean you know last year at the end of last year for example we, we there was a discussion in canada the united states and it's still going on talking about boarding schools and a lot of those boarding schools, you know, were, were driven by this sort of Christian um, desire to remake Native kids um, in the image of good little white Christian boys and girls. Um, and, I, and I talk a little bit about that in the book, uh, about how the boarding schools were used and, and, and targeted um, children we would, we would identify today as two-spirit. Um, and how native kids, when they first got to those boarding schools, responded with just shock and, and fear at, at how those two-spirit kids were being treated. But yeah, I mean, this is a, I, I talk at great length about this um, in the book, about the developing notions, the political applications, I should say, of, of, of particularly Catholicism during the early years of North American or, or colonialism in general in the Americas. Um, 
because the sort of the legal and political applications of Christianity and as it had applied to gendered and sexual norms was, wasn't uniform across Europe in the early modern period. Um, there, there were differences in legal interpretation and application uh, of the law. But one of the things that I think colonization does is it heightens the sense from a European perspective, it heightens the sense of urgency of the need to do something in a world that seems utterly chaotic. And particularly the missionaries and the friars who travel to the Americas um, travel with a really zealous desire to remake um, native, native bodies uh, and native souls, to save their souls, but certainly to, part of that is to remake their bodies and, and what they do with their bodies. And as a result, um, what, we, what we see is, you know, Spanish friars burning uh, Mayan and Aztec texts, but also, you know, stealing children, abducting children um, who look as though they are being, uh, in the minds of, of, of missionaries, being groomed for a life as uh, someone who will be a, a two-spirited person. Um, and so Christianity in general plays a, a major role in this, um, but particularly Catholicism, uh, French and Spanish Catholicism have left us with a lot of written documentation um, which, which I go into in the book. Um, but you mentioned Protestantism. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it is the case that English Protestants did come to the Americas with this sort of idea of where people should fit into the world. And if you think about, you know, Puritans and pilgrims, for example, in New England, um, they travel with some very rigid ideas about where men and women should fit into the world. And they defined very early in their, in their laws in, in the New England colonies um, what was acceptable and not acceptable in terms of sexual expression. Um, and same-sex expression was not uh, necessarily something that was, was acceptable. Um, they, they saw that as akin to a type of bestiality um, that, I mean, it was part of sodomy laws, uh, throughout New England. So, so yeah, so there is this bleeding together of law, politics, and Christianity in, in the colonies, in North American colonies. And, and I think that's, that shouldn't be something that necessarily surprises people because in the early modern period, those things were all meshed together. They're all part of people's worldview and it seemed very natural, for, for those things to inform one another in a way that it doesn't now. I mean, we had this notion of, of separate spheres of politics and religion. Um, but for early modern colonizers, that, is, that, that world w- would have seemed very foreign, very strange to them. Um, and so, you know, when, you, when you're taught that um, sodomy is bad, um, you then go about crafting laws that will police people's behavior and structure society in a way that that punishes people quite severely um, if you're accused of such behavior or you're caught seemingly in, in engaging in those types of behaviors. Okay, so let's talk about, I only want to hone in on one tribe that you talk about, and that is the, is it Zuni you pronounce it? Yes, the Zuni. Yeah. Why are they particularly a challenge for the USA when it comes to gender identity and gender roles? 
Well, part of the reason for this is that in the late 19th century, uh, and this goes back to the English as well, um, English anthropologists were uh, perfecting the study of field work, field anthropology. Mm. And they were going off into the Pacific, uh, into the islands, uh, to Australia, New Zealand, uh, and these sorts of places. And they were, um, rather than like these sort of old school ethnologies of the 18th and early 19th century, relying on travel writing, which is so riven with, with mistakes. And sometimes people were armchair travel writers. I mean, they didn't leave their um, fireplace in, in, you know, in London um, and, and would write about native culture as though they were, had witnessed it. Um, and so English anthropology changes that and begins this tradition of field work. And so this becomes very popular among American anthropologists as anthropology is professionalized at the end of the 19th century. And so you have people like Franz Boas and, and other famous anthropologists from the era um, going off and, and conducting field work, living with native communities um, for, for their summer, for example, when they're not teaching. And the Plains was, all of the Plains and the American West, uh, Pacific Northwest and California, was seen as particularly attractive places for this type of anthropological field work because the assumption was that those were communities, native communities that were uh, untouched, still pure in their indigenous cultures uh, and knowledge systems. So underlying this is this racist notion that Western culture has poisoned the Indianness out of, of people like the Cherokees, for example, or the Creek Indians and the Choctaw back, back East uh, because of their exposure and Western culture being so strong and powerful that it's sort of, just, you know, there's no real Indians left uh, back East. And, and besides which most have been relocated during the removal era and the Trail of Tears in, in the 1830s to Indian territory, which is now Eastern Oklahoma. So, so the plains and the Pacific coast were seen as this sort of ideal laboratory of the final surviving fragments of real Indian culture. And the Zuni were one of those were deemed as most very attractive for anthropologists who, who bought this sort of so-called doom race theory. And so they would go into Zuni communities, um, which continued, I mean, still fairly isolated um, in the Southwest um, from Western culture, although it's not like they didn't have contact and trade with Western culture, but still from, from a stereotypical Western anthropological perspective, this was a gold mine of anthropological information and we need to preserve it before it's gone. Uh, and so one of the Zunis who proved to be uh, particularly influential in this anthropological writing was uh, an individual uh, by the name of um, Wiwa. And Wiwa was a Lahamana and brought, you know, fits under the umbrella term of two spirit, but a Lahamana was someone who took on the roles of a woman. Right. So Wiwa was born biologically male, um, stood around six foot um, and 
and was beloved within the Zuni community. Um, was an educator, was a teacher, cared for children uh, in need, uh, was, an, was, was also artistic and a wonderful storyteller and a wonderful mediator um, uh, among the Zuni. But also, as I talk about in the book, Weewa makes a trip uh, to Washington, D.C. with one of his uh, patrons. I won't give the, all of it away, but that trip to Washington, D.C. sort of seals the legend uh, of Weewa. Uh, and the role of the Lahamana and, and, and sort of the, the mysteries of the Zuni um, in, the, in the minds of, of Anglo-Americans, of white Americans. Um, the reason then, and, and there's two parts to this that I think it's important for listeners to sort of think about um, and reflect on. I mean, on one hand, here we have a two-spirit person uh, in the form of Weewa who's able to negotiate and mediate with Zunis and Americans, right? So this is a sort of powerful form of continuing a traditional role of leader and knowledge keeper that Lahamanas take on in Zuni society. At the same time, those stories are then spun and interpreted in American popular culture and in the media in ways that grossly misrepresent and stereotype uh, Wiwa and Zuni culture. Um, and in fact, Americans were so tied up with and beholden to this whole notion of doomed race theory that they thought that this was probably going to be the end of the line and, and we would be the last Lahamana. That wasn't the case. Right. So, um, you know, there, there are historical lessons in the story of the Zuni um, on multiple levels for both Zuni people, but also for, for Anglo-Americans and how colonialism continued to misrepresent um, the words, actions, and deeds of, of two-spirit people. And you talk about a reawakening from the 1950s. What actually caused that, do you, do you feel? And how much resistance was there to it? Bearing in mind that, you know, 50s USA was not a particularly harmonious society anyway, with concerns about things like communism. So, you know, this reawakening... I'm guessing would have generated some kind of pushback. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the fifties and sixties, it was a pretty lonely world to be, if you were what we call today, two spirit. Um, and a lot, I mean, you know, people understood that, that there was something special and different about them. And but for the most part, in terms of public expression and reclaiming that publicly uh, for most indigenous people, um, it was kept either to themselves or to their closest friends. Um, it's really not until the 1970s. Um, I mean, this, and this springs out of sort of the um, American Indian movement and the counterculture and all of that stuff in the late 60s and then into the early 70s. And you have a lot of uh, native gay and lesbian uh, people moving to places like Seattle and San Francisco for college. And they get swept up in the American Indian movement and uh, the fervor of the time that sort of, I would say it's optimism for the time that they can take control of the, of the historical narrative and change history's course. And so you have a group that, uh, emerge in San Francisco, for example, called the Gay American Indians, G-A-I. 
GAI is led by, uh, or is founded, I should say, by Barbara Cameron and Randy Burns. And Barbara passed away several years ago. Randy is still alive and still very active in the community in San Francisco. Um, But that was an example of Native people trying to reclaim. Um, they They were searching, grasping for the traditions that would give their identities meaning. And they were doing it in an urban context, though. And I think that's important because what you had in in the mid-20th century were federal government policies designed to terminate Indian nations, what was referred to as termination. They weren't subtle about it. Uh, And there were programs to relocate, kind of a second removal, a second trail of tears, if you will, uh, Native people to urban areas, cities like San Francisco, Oakland, Los Angeles. um, And that was part of the termination program to break up um, native communities, to end sovereign communities. Um, And so, you know, out of that, though, comes this desire to reconnect diasporically with tradition. And because urban areas, cities like San Francisco become such hubs Uh, for gay and lesbian politics in the late 20th century. Um, People we know today as Two-Spirit were attracted to these these parts of America. But once they got there, what they found is they were locked out of LGBT communities. There was intense racism within those communities. Uh, And so they had to form their own societies and communities to nurture a sense of not only safety, but solidarity, um, companionship, um, and to begin some sort of political movement that would eventually emerge in the late 80s and into the 1990s and become known as Two-Spirit. Um, so there's much more to the story, but that's, that's, that's the sort of the genesis of this sort of modern um, resurgence in Two-Spirit identity. And now talking multiple generations uh, of people who have taken the story and are driving the narrative and, and are redirecting um, the course of, of Two-Spirit history um, in very creative and innovative ways. I have to ask, in terms of the wider treatment of Native Americans across history, can you put this in the context for us? Um, like, hang on, let me start that one again. In terms of the wider treatment of the Native Americans across history, where does this fit in? Can you set this within the context of the wider oppression of the communities um, for our listeners? Uh, Yeah, I think this sits at the centre of efforts to engage in genocidal behaviours. In terms of situating it within the context of of settler colonialism, Um, because people have to keep in mind that genocide is not just about the physical destruction of a people. It's that and more. Um, and, and we see that throughout the Americas. And in fact, in coming up with that term genocide, I mean, that, that was what Raphael Lemkin was uh, identified was the treatment of indigenous peoples, language, culture, political and knowledge systems. And when you think about how from a very, very early period uh, there was this desire to eradicate native languages, uh, to disrupt indigenous cultures, to separate people from their political structures, their kinship structures, then 
you're talking about a multi-level effort uh, to dismantle indigenous history, culture, and society. And thinking about that and thinking about the central role that two-spirit people play uh, in, in, that, in those communities, in many of those communities, not all, but, you know, many, um, well over 150, um, what would today be federally recognized native communities, um, then you sort of get a sense of why Europeans targeted certain leaders for some very violent and vile attention. Um, it's because they were the ones who were holding these communities together and were passing on the knowledge to the next generations. Um, so I think that's, that's really important to wrap our heads around in terms of context. I mean, there was, there's a lot of forethought here then going on um, on the part of colonizers in trying to weaken and destabilize uh, Native communities by targeting people we identify today as two-spirit. Um, and I think that's important. The other thing, briefly, I think that's uh, important to sort of think about is, is the manner in which two-spirit people were able to sort of adapt and innovate and, and work around that over time. Um, I think that at, even though we're talking about some very sort of sad and violent episodes, uh, we are, when we come out of this at the end of the day, we're talking also about a story of resilience and innovation and adaptation um, that keeps living traditions and knowledge alive. Um, and thank God for those people mm. who had the foresight to um, resist in various ways uh, because it's made this current generation of, of reclaiming possible. I've got one final question, if I can, to wrap up what's been such an interesting episode. And it's about the future. Um, big question, obviously, speculative. But is there reason for optimism for the Native American community in reestablishing their identity in all senses of the term, but particularly in relation to, to spirit. You know, I, I spend a lot of time uh, talking with Native people, and I spend a lot of time um, in Native communities, particularly the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indian, where I'm currently working on a project uh, related to rivers and water uh, in Cherokee history. And the sense I get is, yes, there is optimism and there is hope, but it's cautious optimism and hope because there's a recognition that native people in the United States and Canada still live in colonized spaces and they still have to navigate a world in which settler colonial governments define the parameters of what is, I won't necessarily say possible, but what is normative um, in the world in which we live. Right. And so so there is a cautious optimism. There's also a recognition, though, that there are very real challenges, right? We're facing in the United States, for example, at the moment, and in, an extraordinary attack on transgender people. Um, state lawmakers throughout the country are passing laws that um, target transgender people. Um, that I mean, you might have seen in Texas this past month in March, um, an effort on the part of, of the governor to um, have parents up on child abuse charges if their child was receiving treatment for, for being transgender. 
Um, you have in Florida a, a piece of legislation that has passed. Uh-huh. Um, this one I've heard about. It's horrible. It's horrible. Um, it's called. It's popularly known as the "Don't Say Gay" bill. Yeah. Um, so, and and there's a piece of legislation in my home state of Canada. There's a bill currently that will do something very similar if it is signed by the governor. Uh, in I mean, April. "Don't Say Gay" bill prevents any school from mentioning homosexuality or transgender to un- ten ten years old and under. That's that's right, and any any and, and, but it's it's framed in such a nefarious way that um, those with power on school boards can define what is and is not sexually appropriate. Um, that it, that it empowers them to sort of take texts and curricula out of the system, um, material that would provide information and inform you know decision-making as young people become adults, um, children, young adults will be left in the dark, right? Um, now, it's not as though uh, small children are being exposed to sort of, you know, graphic sexual pornographic material as it's often made out to be. I mean, it's age-appropriate material. I mean, they're not um, provided with a list of alternative lifestyles either, are they? No, no. What 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 is being... I think what some people are upset about uh, on the political spectrum is that there's been an effort on the part of um, educators and uh, historians uh, to engender a sense of, of radical empathy. And it's radical in the sense that we've been telling histories that previous generations of white male historians haven't been willing to tell, mm. right? So they've been telling stories about um, royal families and political leaders and, you know, the great men of history type narratives. And one of the things that is fabulous about the historical profession is it's, it has attracted such a diverse range of people um, who have improved the, tra- uh, the, the way in which we tell history and write about history. Uh, men, women from all racial and ethnic backgrounds, um, men and women from different political perspectives, uh, people from different gendered and sexual uh, identities. Um, It's become a very diverse profession. And I think that has unstabilized the sense of certainty that some people feel um, was once present in a world that seems to be changing very fast around them. Right. So um, I think one of the things then, I mean, I will say one, my book probably won't be approved by uh, school boards around the country um, because it does challenge that sense of, of male, female certainty and the gender binary. Um, but I, I'll get myself in trouble here, but, um, but it is the case that the genie has been let out of the bottle in terms of the history is out there and, and we have to deal with the complexity of historical knowledge and life. Um, and putting that genie back in the bottle, I think is going to cause far more emotional um, and political distress um, than anything else. Um, so yeah, I'll leave it there. It's a thought for us to end on um i hope you don't get in trouble for that 
Oh, um, I'm used to it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I, I love the idea that somewhere out there, there's a whole bunch of straight white men, probably middle-aged and above, just, just losing their shit because they're no longer the centre of the universe. And long may it continue. I love that too. <laughs> what a pity. Um, no doubt they'll write an angry letter to, I don't know, Daily Mail or something. This has been brilliant, Craig. Thank you so much for joining us. Reclaiming Two Spirits, Sexuality, Spiritual Renewal and Sovereignty in Native America. It is out, folks. You can get it from the History Hack bookstore. Check the link in the description. That'll take you through to our link tree where you'll be able to see the bookstore and you'll be able to buy it. And if you buy through that link, rather than all the profits going to Jeff Bezos to fund his rocket fuel, the author gets a cut. Yes, you've heard this rant before. I don't care. I'm going to do it every single time until you're sick of it and run away screaming. Uh, but also, if you buy through the bookstore, we also get a little bit as well. So you're supporting two individuals who massively appreciate it. Uh, it's been brilliant, Greg. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's brilliant. Can I just say as well that two spirits is such a lovely term, a lovely positive term. Um, and I quite mm-hmm. like it. Um, yeah, I, I like it too. And um yeah i was just gonna say i mean i mean it's a term that that folks are debating within the two-spirit community um because there are other terms that have emerged as you saw in the book like indigiqueer um that see that just sounds faddy i like two-spirit yeah i agree i mean it sounds very jargony um but yeah i mean it's the way two-spirit's being used as a verb is something very active um i think that that's that's really beautiful um so yeah When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.